0: Well, good morning, saints, once again. Sorry, we're all the frozen chosen this morning, aren't we? (laughs) Bitter cold. So if you're uh, visiting, I just want you to know that we're in the middle of a series on Philippians, in the book of Philippians, and uh, you'll be seeing some of that on the screen in a minute. In your bulletin, you have not only your order of service, but a place for taking notes, in case you're a note taker, which I hope you are and uh, at least occasionally, and uh, there'll be some material you may want to write down as we move along. And uh, today is a very, very special day, isn't it? Wow. See a lot of marriage counseling coming this week. (laughs) We've been running a series, and uh, I've been using an old church rune from England, Lindisfarne, Holy Island, just as a reminder that the church is a living thing, a living uh, family, and uh, families come and go. But the family of God continues all around the globe somewhere at any given time, and we're part of that now. But there's a character I want to put on the screen he relates to today. Anybody guess who that is? Well, you can read it, right? St. Valentine, I thought, this is free, this isn't in the notes, I'm not even charging you for this, okay? Um, I thought I'd put that up there, because I wonder how many of us know the story behind that, you know, we give little candies out, say, be my valentine, all of that, right? Where do we get that crazy stuff? And people think he was all about love. Well, all the Christians were supposed to be about love, you know, agape love putting another person's need ahead of my own. That's the word. That's what it means. Charity, translated in your old King James Version. There's a connection to that, right? Of course, that was universal among the saints. But let me tell you the story about St. Valentine, and I always do this. Lose my notes. This was about the third century, all right? So 269 about uh, after the time of Christ. This Roman priest was living during the time of Claudius, who was the emperor, who was persecuting Christians. And here's a very interesting thing. Don't always know this. In those days, Claudius set out an edict which said that young men couldn't get married And especially of military age, I don't know what all the details are, as one uh, father from, uh, uh, Catholic Father O'Gara from Dublin explains, a bit of a scholar on this, basically that he didn't want men to get married because then they wouldn't serve fearlessly in the military. So while they're of um, conscription age, I'm sure that was his edict. But the culture, which was either polygamous or very immoral in those days, if you've watched any of that stuff on TV, HBO series about Rome, you know it was pretty rank. And uh, some of that is true. And so those who were interested in hearing the truth of the gospel felt like this is a very honorable thing. And the church stood very clearly that marriage was very sacred. It was to be permanent between one man and one woman. So how do you solve that problem as Christians if you want to get married? It's called civil disobedience. And there are times that that's right for the church. It's just the way it is. So Valentine secretly married couples, and eventually he got caught, arrested, and martyred for his faith. But here's a little extra part of the story that's kind of fun. One of the people who was set aside to judge him, a man named Astorius, had a daughter. This daughter, I understand, was blind, and the story goes that Valentine had shared the gospel, led her to faith, prayed for her, and miraculously she was healed. It was such an extraordinary miracle that the judge Astorius converted. Isn't that cool? But when... Valentine was facing his final moments. He wrote a letter to Astorius' daughter, his precious disciple in Christ, and signed it, your Valentine. (laughs) That's where it came from. Quite a noble story compared to little candies that say be mine, don't you think? So that one was free, no charge. Let's move forward and look at uh, our scripture for today, if we could. If you want to look at where it is in the Bible, we have in the pew. If you don't have a Bible, this uh, version, you can open it up to page 569, and you'll find the entire text that we're looking at that was read to us a moment ago uh, on that page. And uh, we'll be moving ahead from there with that story. Now, I titled my sermon today, Oleo Two. Does anybody remember why this is Oleo 2 odds and Oleo One." yeah, we did one. How many of you remember what Oleo means? Odds and ends. Anybody got a junk drawer where all the, all the odds, and everybody's got closets like that. We got all kinds of things, right? Whole houses. Anyway, <laughs> Oleo is hodgepodge, everything thrown together, right? And uh, so one time I was teaching two years ago, probably don't remember a lot of that, I'm not sure I remember, but I used the title Oleo because I needed to catch up on some things that uh, kind of slipped through the cracks. Same thing today, only I figure if they can go boys to men, and they, you know, B-O-Y-Z, and then there was Dumb and Dumber 2, which was T-O-O, I can get away with it, so that's what I did. This is Oleo 2. All right, so you don't have to like it, and you don't even have to like me, really, but why I'm doing this is because the last few Sundays, as we've been pushing through the scripture, I've had a number of questions come to me, and I want to address them. So that's why on your note paper you have four points that I'd like to speak to catch up, kind of this hodgepodge that, actually, they are kind of related subjects, And then finish the sermon about how you pray on target, which I started last week. And my last point is about that, finishing praying on target. Okay? So there's several things that came up. Last week, for example, we were talking about the story of Achan out of the Old Testament. And uh, when I did teach that, some people misunderstood what I said. So I want to go back and clarify if I could. And so the first thought or question that I want to talk about is God's justice or his judgment, if you will, because it relates precisely to his holiness. All right. And the story is, and let me just give it to you, that uh, Achan in the Old Testament was the character who, when the children of Israel were taking the promised land, they had already won the battle at Jericho, that famous story where the walls came tumbling down. And they were moving on, and the way God had intended it, there would be no military losses. They were just going to take the land. In fact, what God wanted was that people would either convert to his faith or they would just clear out. But nevertheless, in that story, they go to the next city, which is Ai. And they look at it, and they say, it's a small city. We don't need our whole army. Just send maybe 3,000 men. That should be enough, especially when nobody's really winning anything or resisting. This should be simple. And so God said, okay, it's okay to go ahead and do that. However, when I tell you to take Jericho, this is the first city you're taking. All the spoils belong to me. They're holy to the Lord. You don't keep anything. By the way, there may be an implication there about what is called first fruits in the Bible. Don't have time to unpack that a whole lot, but we tend to give God what we got left over. God's approach scripturally is go the other way, and I'll bless you in ways you can't believe. But anyway, don't touch any of that spoil. It belongs to me. Well, here's one guy who basically, basically sticks his tongue out in God, at God and says, uh, No one, who's going to know? He sees all this cool stuff, he steals it, and his family is in cahoots with him. They hide it in their tent. Nobody's innocent in this thing. Now, what people got confused about was the army went out, faced Ai, and the army of Israel runs away from the enemy at this point. They are defeated. This was a total shock, and 36 men get killed in the process. So these are innocent victims because of Achan's sin. Now, how do we feel about things like that? How do we feel when drunken drivers take out our family? What kind of justice do we want? So for God to say, Achan and your family, you're gone, is thoroughly just, but it touches on, because someone came and said, I'm going to use the illustration, it was a great illustration, won't mention any names, Ben. But anyway, um, (laughs) the... That, that some people have a view of God like he's got a magnifying glass and we're ants and he's using the sun to just fry us up. It impugns his very nature and what he is really like. Let me just show you a verse from the scripture. I love this verse. He who is the blessed, this time talking about Jesus, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no man has seen or can see, to him be glory and honor and dominion forever. And all of God's people said. But the implication of this, these words, is that he dwells in an approachable life. It's referring to his otherness, his holiness, some of the perfections of God that we can't get our brains around completely. But that doesn't make them not true that he is holy. And just and righteous. The real issue is that none of us left to ourselves have any business standing before him. I'd like to uh, indulge myself, if not you, reading from John Stott, The Cross of Christ. For those of you who might struggle with how does God remain holy, how can he be loving, and yet judge sin, but justify sinful people. All of those questions, there's 400 pages of explanation. Okay? It's a, you'd have to plow through it, I would admit. But just listen to a couple of tidbits from this, if I may. John Stott writes this, that God is holy is foundational to biblical religion. Everybody with me? It's foundational So is the corollary that sin is incompatible with his holiness. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. Therefore, our sins effectively separate us from him so that his face is hidden from us, and he refuses to listen to our prayers. He dwells in unapproachable light. He alone possesses immortality. In consequence, it was clearly understood by the biblical authors that no human being could ever set eyes on God and survive the experience. They might... Even Indiana Jones got that. <laughs> Do you remember? In the Raiders of the Lost Ark, shut your eyes. What was her name? Anyway, shut your eyes. Don't open your eyes. Don't look at it. Even he got it. I'm t- yeah. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> rent it anyway <laughs> they might perhaps be permitted to see his back but not his face the sunshine but not the sun all those who were granted even a glimpse of his glory were unable to endure the sight Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God Isaiah go down the list they all have the same response you're too holy can't be seen So there's something about this holiness of God that we sometimes miss. Here's his complaint, if you will. We saunter up to God to claim his patronage and friendship. It does not occur to us that he might send us away. Now, some of you, I know your evangelical doctrine is messing up your processing on this. Listen. We need to hear again the Apostle's sobering words, Apostle Peter. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives in reverent fear. In other words, if we dare to call our judge our father, we must beware of presuming on him. It must be even said that our evangelical emphasis on the atonement is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. We learn to appreciate the access to God which Christ has won for us only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. Is that making sense? Woe is me, for I'm lost. In Dale's words, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. Boy, I sound like an old-fashioned preacher here, don't I? That's because this is what it says. In consequence, well, let me just read this last paragraph. We must, therefore, hold fast to the biblical revelation of the living God who hates evil, is disgusted and angered by it, and refuses ever to come to terms with it. In consequence, we may be sure that when he searches in his mercy for some way to forgive, cleanse, and accept evildoers, it was not along the road of moral compromise. As Bruner put it, Where the idea of the wrath of God is ignored, there will also be no understanding of the central conception of the gospel, the uniqueness of the revelation of a mediator. Similarly, he who knows, only he who knows of the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. See, we all say, oh, see, he's preaching an angry, hateful God. That's what the culture does because they don't even think it through. No, a God who loved us enough that the wrath fell on his son and crushed himself on our behalf. When we talk about the son being the victim, if you will, that's God. God loved us enough to pay for it with his own being, you see? So that's the first thing understanding the justice of God, and we can never fully grasp this. And the second thing is like unto it, and that has to do with the character of God. Scripture reveals it this way, and this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. There's not evil motives like we have. We tend to be petulant. We tend to be vicious and resentful and bitter. He's not like that. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I missed something last week. We were singing a song called Beautiful One. Anybody remember that one? Beautiful One I Love, Beautiful One I Adore. I know sometimes guys feel a little self-conscious singing songs like that to a sort of a male figure, with who God is, you know. And uh, it's something we have to grow in. Let me illustrate to you why I love that song so much. I think I've shared it before, but might have forgotten. I was out in San Diego. I was taking training with my friend Gary, who came here and spoke, who had been rescued out of the gay lifestyle and is now ministering to people with gender confusion, conflict. And uh, we went out for the training, and here are all these people much more honest about their brokenness than the average church member, let me tell you. And they are worshiping with two songs that have become my favorites ever since, Uh, Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, that one. And this song, Beautiful One I Love. People pressing in to get it right. To see God as he really is, to get it right. That the God who made us, male and female, he created them. And that those things that God created in his image, male and female, he created them, are good gifts to the human race. It's a good thing. And if I can get that clear in my head, I will be improved in my own soul. I will see God more clearly, and that will transform my inner man. That's been true for all the great saints as they press in, and, and that's true for you as you press in, right? It transforms us. Um, one of the people that I have always appreciated has been um, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. Uh, greatest theological mind back in the early days of our nation and part of the great awakening took place but he was quite a deep character everybody thinks of Jonathan Edwards and immediately says oh he's the one who preached sinners in the hands of an angry God and everybody freaked out in the church and you know made professions of faith that's all they see there's a lot more to this brother John Piper and Desiring God, we mentioned it last week, I pulled out just something by way of reminder uh, from him about Jonathan Edwards meditating on the perfections of God, of what he's like, and how it's transformational, and how it actually brought peace and joy into his soul. Let me just read just a quick portion. Many of us have gone through a period of deep struggle with the doctrines of God. For example, this doctrine of sovereignty. You always hear me say, God, you're sovereign and you're good. You have to make up your mind whether that's true or not. I can't make up your mind for you. I can't settle it in your soul. I can't do that for you. The Spirit of God has to do that for you. But what is he really like? For instance, sovereignty. If we take our doctrines into our hearts where they belong, They can cause upheavals of emotion and sleepless nights. This is far better than toying with academic ideas that never touch real life. The possibility at least exists that out of the upheavals will come a new era of calm and confidence in God. Did, Did you catch that? I can tell you that is true. In fact, I'm hanging out with some other pastors. I do that once in a while. We're doing some spiritual formation issues Out of five major things that influence the lives of pastors A little study that we're doing Guess what one of the biggest growth factors is Who said it? Huh? Trials Trials, Difficulty Suffering Hardship There's something about that If we'll press into God In fact, when I went through my my ordeal That... uh, you know, lost my seat of power up north and eventually ended up here. I had a sister in crisis like my spiritual accountability partner. Sorry I'm past you guys. Are you okay? I don't want to give you a crick in your neck. I'll pull back a little bit. Uh, basically said a profound thing. Well, told all my problems, how upset I was, how miserable, how unfair, how God didn't know what he was doing. I laid it all out. None of you have ever said anything like that, have you? <laughs> And this sister said, I guess you're going to find out who God really is. That's after 30 years in ministry and a lot of cool things I saw. Yeah, I guess you're right. And she was right. Ooh, am I mad? Anyway, no, it really did work. So Jonathan Edwards struggling with the issue of God's sovereignty, for example. From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine. used to appear like a horrible doctrine. Consider, God is sovereign, and yet there's evil in the world, and somehow he works this for good, right? That's not easy to swallow, so he's struggling with that. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God. There's been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to that doctrine from that day to this so that I can scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection in the most absolute sense. I have often since not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. This guy would think about the the perfections of God and and be overcome with love and joy and just break down. And it's like, what are these guys, weird? No, they're connecting with the one who made them in ways we often just gloss over. The doctrine has been often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But I didn't start there. See, we want the McDonald's form of sanctification, right? Drive-through, the drive-through, you know, drive out with it. But it's a process that we're in. Okay, that, these were all my catch-up verses. Can you imagine? Let's see, I got four minutes left, all right. <laughs> Next one. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Isn't that a great verse? Okay, what does it mean? Last week when I preached about legalism being a demonic damaging way of thinking and doing Christianity, which it is. Some of you burst into applause, which almost gave me a heart attack. (laughs) Hasn't happened very often here, but it did happen, and I'm kind of glad it did. But I thought it'd be appropriate to be clear about that. So in your notes, you have four little slots there, because God's liberty... We've looked at his justice. We've looked at God's character. I'm sorry, I didn't give you the C. God's character in him is light. There's no darkness at all. He's consistent. And looking at his perfections does, in fact, transform us. One last thing on worship. Can I just exhort us? Some of us, let's get the music stuff over and hear the meat. You need to open yourself up to the first part. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died... My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. It's transformational if you will allow the Spirit to get a hold of your emotions, not out of control emotions. Let Him speak into your heart. Okay, enough of that. Next thing God's liberty the liberty of the gospel, freedom in Christ. There are four ways that we are liberated by Jesus, four ways that we walk in freedom. The first should be obvious. If we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are liberated from the judgment that comes from the law being broken. We're saved from death. That's called forgiveness. That's why that whole thing about the forgiveness of God or the the holiness of God, the fact that he cannot tolerate evil, we're relieved because... We're received in the, in the beloved. That's, what, that's the gospel. When, when people say, I still don't get that thing of holiness, that means you still don't get the gospel. He's holy, cannot accept us as we are. He has to provide some way. And that's what the cross of Christ was all about. Am I, am I being clear? Number one, that would be the first liberty. We're freed from the power of death. The second thing is we're freed from the power of Satan. There is a real being called Satan and his minions that are at work in this world and in this room right now. We're freed from that, although few Christians have learned how to exercise their authority and use the sword of the Spirit, Satan. Third, we're freed from the law in terms of legalism, and what that means is not God's moral perfection laws. You can see an outline of that in the Ten Commandments, for example. Those moral laws remain steadfast. It's still wrong to steal, still wrong to lie, still wrong to cheat on your wife. It's all wrong. Okay, that hasn't changed. But man tends to add a lot of extra goodies. Commentary on the commentary. No, you have to keep this rule. You have to keep that rule. You got to keep that extra rule. In our church, we don't do that, whatever. And by the way, local churches have a right to do what they will. But I am saying that's not coming necessarily out of the Scripture. So all of those rules, like I had to wrestle with when we worked at camp. Remember, you weren't allowed to go roller skating. Pretty sinful activity. (laughs) But that was one of the rules. Those are the rules of man. I'm freed from that. (laughs) And I don't like roller skating. It doesn't matter. (laughs) But I'm freed from it. Those are man's rules, and that's where we damage each other because we shovel Lots of weights on people that they shouldn't have to carry. That was Jesus' complaint with the Pharisees. You pile big loads on people, and you won't even lift your finger to help them get out from under it. And that's not from God. But there's one other way that we are liberated. We are liberated from the power of sin. It's possible to live under the control of the Holy Spirit. Freedom in Christ is not libertine. It doesn't mean I can do whatever I want because there's no consequences. Oh, my friends, you can't sow your wild oats and then pray for crop failure. It doesn't work. There are consequences unless God is exceedingly merciful to bail you out, even as a believer. You can't just go do what you want. Well, you can, but God has not liberated us to be libertine, to be disobedient. If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Does anybody know the context of that verse? It's exactly what I'm talking about. He's saying to the, to the Jewish people that were confronting him, you're actually slaves. What? We're children of Abraham. We're, we're not slaves. We're not enslaved to anybody. He said, oh, yes, if you serve sin, you're the slave of sin. You're in bondage. And he's saying that to people with religious backgrounds and trying to help them see that they're trapped. If the sun shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. So that's what that's about. I think the New Testament puts it this way, don't use your freedom as a cloak for evil. Philippians chapter 1, where we started in this book, you should manifest, pray for people to manifest the fruit of righteousness. That's praying on target, right? And we're, we're all along on a journey, and nobody's perfect. You understand We're going to drop the ball, we're going to blow it, but it's not an excuse to say I can do whatever I want. Some people get that wrong. One more point. This was a couple of weeks back and I don't even remember who came to me about this, but we were talking about um, the opening verse of Philippians where Paul says, Paul and Timothy bond slaves of Christ Jesus. I think one of the versions says servants of Christ Jesus, and I said that's kind of insipid because the word literally is a slave. It literally is a slave. Now, a couple of comments on that. Slavery, the very word, brings up all kinds of images. Some terrible, reprehensible history, even in our country, right? Uh, Stuff that shouldn't have happened, Stuff that was completely unjust. So that's true. I also want to make a comment that you'll have an opportunity as a congregation, if I have a say about it, that uh, International Justice Mission is working against today's modern slavery because it's all over the globe and we can do something by simply signing some petitions to help legislation work against that. And so in a few weeks, we'll try to do that. So all you have to do is sign to help out because it's a nightmare out there. I hope you're aware of that. It's a nightmare what's happening to people unjustly trapped into slave labor, slave, you know what else is involved with that? And uh, it's a nightmare. So there's a terrible side to that. Go back now to the Old Testament context, if you will. The whole culture that the Jews lived in Slavery was an accepted fact of life. In the Roman Empire, slavery was still accepted as a, as a way of life. So when God started to give rules, he couldn't change all culture instantly, so he gave incremental instruction. Women's rights, believe it or not, in the Old Testament, incremental instruction. We think, oh, that was so bad. Well, we uh, got to read it in light of the culture. Same thing with Slavery. So God tried to make arrangements where slaves would be treated with kindness. If you were lucky enough to be in a Jewish household, maybe you'd luck out and really live fairly well. And so sometimes a person who was in slavery was given a wife and had children and was happy working for his master. His master was well off, and he made sure the slave was well off. In fact, you can read about some of the servants in the Old Testament. These guys had cash and stocks and bonds and everything. You know, they had a whole portfolio of their own. And so it was possible sometimes for one of them to say, you know, I, I, my, my master's offering me freedom. I'm crazy to go out. I want to stay right here. I'm living really well. So if that happens, the master should take him to the judges. Here's what it says. His master shall bring him to God. If you're not aware of it, the Old Testament word for God, one of the names for God is Elohim. It's a plural word, which, by the way, has implications about the Trinity, if you think about it. But occasionally, it's a reference to rulers. So he should go to the elders of the city, go to the gate where the elders sat, and make a formal contract and say... He wants to work for me forever. we got a good thing going here. We love each other. We're happy. We're like extended family. And so he will bring him to the judges or to God. We're not sure what he's referring to there. Then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear. See, they were way ahead of us. No tats, just a piercing in the ear. He's got bling now, you know. And with an all, and he shall serve him permanently. It was the symbol that he belonged to that household. And often they had a great deal of power and were the stewards over that household or whatever. Now, the only reason I brought this up was because when it says a bond slave of Jesus Christ, and we kind of cringe against that, I don't even like being told I should be serving God with my time or talent or treasures. If that could happen in a human context, do you think the master in heaven is a bad leader to serve? Or wouldn't it be the best deal around? I just want to encourage you, serving him with everything you have is the best deal around. He's a good master, a good head of the household. He really is. So that's just a little encouragement for us, okay? That he's worth following and aligning myself with. Now, certainly I've aggravated somebody by now. Here's my famous slide, there it is. Any questions? If you're visiting, we do do this once in a while, so just so you know. No question, I terrified everybody, all right. Ready to finish? Fa- Don, I don't know, Don? Okay. not a question. Get that book and, read it and, and let it. I just, I'm more excited about God now than years. Well, don't get too radical. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That'd be good. <laughs> Thank you, brother. That's good. Anyone else? No questions, though? That was a comment. I shouldn't let you I do know. that. I don't know. So did I you did. I, I invited you. Anyone else? Sir? That's, that's a good comment. Gesundheit. Gesundheit. I <clears throat> Amen. So yep. when your come out, we're never going to arrive this side of glory. You all get that, right? And uh, so we're always we should always be recognizing that God is taking us from layer to layer, level to level to level, right? <laughs> Paul puts it this way, we're beholding his face from glory to glory to glory. There's different levels at which we keep learning and learning. I don't know how Christians can be bored. It just makes me furious. It does. It's like, there's, I'm never going to get it all, so I've got plenty to do. In fact, if anything, I would feel like there's no way I'm going to get through this curriculum. And you know what, God says, you're right, you never are, not this side of glory. You are going to get it on the other end, but you know, I think in heaven we're still going to be learning and serving, by the way. Well, that's a whole nother subject, I better stay on task. Ready? <laughs> Any other questions, comments? You have a question. Yeah, before I, I wasn't, I, I didn't hear everything, you said we pile weights on people. That's the legalism. well when jesus was rebuking the pharisees he says woe to you scribes and pharisees because you put big weights on people you give them all these rules they have to keep that weren't from god they weren't in the torah in the mishnah yes all the additional commentaries it's added in you put all of this weight on them you have to tithe mint and cumin and this and that and be so careful and so you do all of that, but you won't lift a finger yourself. You put all these weights on them, but you won't lift a finger to help them walk in freedom and enjoy. God intended us to enjoy him. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God by enjoying him forever. Right? I modified it for your sake because you're reading Piper. Are you ready to move on? We're going to close out here pretty quickly. We. Not another magnifying glass one. That's what started this whole oleo thing. Your question. <laughs> Go ahead. You know, you've been talking about the character of God. And why is the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? There is no difference. That's the problem. That, right. There's no difference. What, you know, the God of the Old Testament, um, you know, people mocked his name. They were struck dead. Uh, nations were wiped out because they believed Today... We'll mock his name and there's nothing what wait <laughs> just wait <laughs> there was no wait then though. what and why how else would we get the concept of holiness and intolerable evil how could, how else are you going to get it How else would the early church get that it was the same God unless Ananias and Sapphira got struck down right in their presence? Can you imagine that happening this morning? What? You get what I'm saying? There's no difference. That's the point. The difference is in the New Testament, the mercy of God and his solution via redemption, the ultimate goal of redemption. All those animals was all going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This is where he was taking them, to understand that our sin is intolerable, but that his mercy is absolutely ample to rescue us. Okay? They're the same God. That's what we get around. That's Read the cross of Christ by Stott. I encourage it, really. I do. All right, now I'm going to have to move on. Or, where, is that where is that in my story? Where is Acts chapter six, five, five, five I think 5? 5, Acts, Acts 5, New Testament, yes, yes, okay, we're going to close out, ready, okay, I know I shocked everybody, Whew. praying on target, that's what we were talking about, the last part of that passage, let me just read it to you again, okay, we don't have it on the screen, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You're always praying on target if you're praying for those things in the believer's life. You're always on target. You don't have to worry about wondering, how should I pray about this issue? That gives you, among many New Testament prayers, guidance. The passage that we had read this morning talks about Paul being in jail. Let me give it to you very quickly. One, he's in jail, and he says, this is kind of rotten, but guess what the good news is? The gospel's going all out, and even members of Caesar's hit squad, the Praetorian Guard, they're getting converted. They're hearing the gospel. So I'm delighted that God is using me to build the church even while I'm in jail. In the meantime, there are friends outside who know that I'm tied up, so they're picking up the slack. They're doing some of my Bible studies for me. They're preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. There's also some other people who are jealous of me. Can you imagine? There are some people who are preaching, trying to make converts and make it clear that we're not followers of Paul. They think they're going to cause me distress while I'm in jail here. Maybe they'll get some people converted, the Praetorians will see it, and they'll come and pick on Paul because of it. They don't know exactly why or how that could happen, Paul says doesn't matter to me whether their motives are corrupt or whether their motives are pure because they love me and they love Jesus what matters is the gospel is preached therefore I will rejoice now preachers and churches need to learn that okay there's some words here that I want to share but let me explain what happened why did Paul have people that were jealous well don't We need to know how our nature kind of is. Better or worse, anybody follow the best parts in the newspaper, it's the comics, right? It's the best thing. Better or worse, little family, they've got their kids in school. So there's a boy and a little girl, Elizabeth, she's in like, what, second grade maybe, something like that, my wife would know. I don't, I don't follow the kids there. Anyway, hey Elizabeth, did you do a Valentine for Melody Morrison? Yeah, I had to. Look at her. She thinks she's great. Then the boy says, I bet she thinks she's better than anybody. And then the boy goes on, just because she's cute, because she's smart, because she's got nice clothes. <laughs> and the girl, Elizabeth, says, yeah. And then they're both sitting there and they're both thinking the exact same thing. I wish I was Melody Morrison. <laughs> Oh, boy, is that human nature or not? So Paul has a glorious ministry. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, and there's always some big fat ego head who thinks, hey, I preach as good as him. In fact, I think I'm a little more precise on this and that than he is. And, boy, it happened in the New Testament. Church people did it, and preachers did it. Some church people said, well, we're of Paul. And the other one said, well, it's too bad for you because we're of Apollos. And some of them were really spiritual. Well, we're of Christ. Are you getting it? Yeah, I'm better. Nanny, nanny. The words that are used there, jealousy and strife, it's just jealousy, spite, quarreling, and rivalry. But here's a freebie. He says, some preach out of goodwill, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, which was our seminary logo, by the way, appointed for the defense of the gospel, Denver Seminary. But the other word comes right after that. They do it out of love. Others do it out of selfish ambition. This is the word. People who want Greek, I'm giving it to you. Selfish ambition. Erethea. You know what the Greek word means? Let me cut through it. Right now on TV, it's all in our face. It's the word for electioneering, running for office. I'm better than that candidate. <laughs> you know, I'm better. That's what it is, electioneering, intriguing for office, taking a partisan or fractious spirit so you can get... I want more tweets than the Apostle Paul. That's the bottom line. (laughs) I'm better. I got a cooler ministry. You know, my website's better. Whatever. And it happens in the pew, and it happens in the pulpit. I was in Belize, Central America, years ago, British Honduras. And um, I was circulating with our CB missionaries, as a matter of fact, and teaching on spiritual warfare. And um, I went to several church meetings. I went to this one meeting, and this pastor was really dynamic and all of that. And I had been to other places, and they didn't look as dynamic as him. And I was pretty young at the time. And I said to our missionary, who has labored and spilled emotional blood in that place for probably 25 years, I said, "Well, that pastor we saw tonight, man, he was—he uh, seemed like your best option down here." And the missionary got very quiet. <laughs> what? What? Well, what I say? You know, <laughs> his reaction. It was late at night, and he said, "I don't do uh, emotional spent time well." He said, "Let's talk in the morning." He just said. That was premature because the man's problematic with his ego. Self-importance, got to have it my way. Every other church isn't good enough. Every other ministry isn't quite good enough because we do it. I do it right. I've got it all together. Oh, my goodness, that is not the spirit of Jesus. It's just not. God says to us through Paul here, I want you to have real knowledge. I pray that your love may abound still more in real knowledge and all discernment. What's real knowledge as opposed to fake knowledge? No, all knowledge is true. Here's what he's saying. Let me give you the words. Real knowledge is epigenosis. The basic word for knowledge is gnosis, to know, right? The Gnostics, it was about knowing. Epigenosis is intimate, connected, experiential knowledge. Here's the simplest way to remember this. This word, when it says real knowledge, you ever talk to somebody and you say, oh, he gets it. Yeah, oh, I know the gospel, blah, blah, blah. And you talk to him a little bit, and it's obvious you don't really know the gospel. You don't, you don't get But other people get it. Whatever the subject might be, when somebody really gets it, that's what he's saying. I want you to really get it. Get it fully, and I also want, I went the wrong way, sorry, all discernment. This word esthesis is talking about having um, discernment and an intuitive insight so that you get it. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Years ago, I was... Uh, in fact, this is from a story from related to Calvary Baptist in Manhattan. Somebody's here from there. I saw them out there. Where are they? There they are. And I used to go over there once in a while and listen to uh, some great preaching. So one day, I'm in a, a deli in Queens, and I'm interacting with someone, and a woman comes in who goes off totally not expecting this. I found out that they went to that church... And she started ripping into one of the pastors that was on staff, just dressing him down. Oh, that guy. But this pastor, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. But this one, no, 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 no. He doesn't, and I have discernment. Yes, I have. She told me no uncertain terms multiple times. I have discernment. And you know what? It's possible that you have the gift of discernment, but it sure is buried under an awful lot of not good stuff. (laughs) You have definitely the gift of criticism (laughs) and motor mouth and a few other issues that aren't glorifying God. Maybe you have the gift of discernment, but I sure can't tell for sure by what I just heard. Because what I heard is I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm smarter than everybody else and apparently you don't really get it because if you really got it, you would understand that what you just did was sin. God wants us to learn the gospel in real knowledge, really getting it and having discernment. In fact, here's one of my favorite verses. I'm going to close with this. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Isn't that a great statement? Senses trained to to discern good and evil. The word trained there is they have their senses gymnasiumed. Gymnasiumed. You have to build up your spiritual muscles. You neglect it, just like your diet or your exercise or anything else, you get weak, you get whatever. Same thing in the spirit. If you don't exercise it, your muscles get weak. You have to build up your spiritual muscles so you can discern good from evil. So many times we want to help people get out of the situation they're in that's a little bit painful and stretching and uncomfortable, and we want to relieve that prematurely before they really get well and they really go deep we need our senses trained to discern good and evil so may God grant it that we pray on target and we grow in those very things we're all along the spectrum so let's embrace moving forward to the next level let's stand together I'm going to dismiss us in prayer thank you worship team for flexing And uh, glad you made it, and please be safe going home and gesundheit. Let's pray. Well, Father, I want to thank you this morning that you have not left us in the dark. The world is in darkness. In fact, the scripture tells us the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, and we see more and more of that in the days in which we live. And yet, in the midst of that, you have You have shined your light in the darkness, both in the person of Jesus, both in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your church when he rises up and honors you and gives you glory through the lives of your saints. And you've given us the word that the entrance of your word brings light. It sorts out our confusion. It helps us look at your perfections. It lifts us up. It takes our mind and our moral being upward to become a little bit more like the glorious Savior that has rescued us. And so, Lord, would you do this work of the Spirit among us, we ask. We need your help desperately. And in these days, God, put your angels around your servants. Sanctify us by your Holy Spirit's work and your word which is life itself. Fill us, we pray. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen and amen. Have a great day. Be careful. Goodbye.